When Thomas Edison was on his deathbed, the last words he spoke, he said, it is very beautiful over there. And he died. When Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple, when he died in 2011, his last words were, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. Oscar Wilde, the playwright and a real character, when he was on his deathbed, he said, either that wallpaper goes or I do. And he did. Ludwig Beethoven at the end of his life with family and friends around he said friends applaud the comedy is finished and he died <laughs> and then <laughs> In 1732, there was a, a French nun named Louise Marie Therese. And her final words were, A woman who can fart is not dead. <laughs> then there's this one. When a priest said, I'm sure you want to talk to me now, to the dying playwright Wilson Misner. He replied, why should I talk to you? I've just been talking to your boss. <laughs> and he died. A lady named Stacy Honeycutt shares this about her mother. She said, my mother's last words to me were at first simply, I want to go home. I told her she couldn't go back home. She was too ill. Then she clarified me for me by adding to Jesus. And she died. Then another person wrote, my grandmother, at 99 years old, and being a Christian her whole life, after outliving her brothers and her husband, said, I'm coming home, Jesus. Just, just hold the door a little longer. And then Harriet Tubman, that incredible conductor of the Underground Railroad, before and during the Civil War, taking hundreds of slaves to freedom up in Canada. They had to go all the way up. The last words that she spoke were, swing low, sweet chariot. <laughs> And then Voltaire, 
famous anti-Christian atheist. When he was on his, death, his deathbed, a priest was encouraging him and exhorting him to renounce Satan. His answer, now is not the time for making new enemies. And he died. And then there's Tupac. But I'm not going to repeat his last words. You see, the final words spoken before the death of a person have been understood for ages to carry a, a special importance. And in many examples, at least, this has proven true. In fact, the entire book of Deuteronomy is a series of farewell messages given by Moses right before the Lord led him up to the top of the mountain to die. And he gave these messages to the surviving younger generation after the 40 years of wandering. Deuteronomy, let me see who's, somebody's buzzing on here. Here we go, morning Leon. Deuteronomy includes the reteaching and the elaboration of the law that was given by God through Moses initially to the now dead generation. A lot of that is in Exodus. But Deuteronomy also includes several times exhortations to be faithful to Yahweh, to be obedient to his law, and to reject and resist the many temptations to disobey. In Deuteronomy, Moses clearly enumerated the blessings that would come from faithful obedience. And he also clearly described the horrible curses, the consequences that would come from faithless disobedience. And now as we come to the final two chapters of the book of Joshua, we actually see what was probably the same event, but from two very different perspectives. Chapter 23 is 16 short verses packed with a quick summary of the conquest and a powerful exhortation to be faithful and obedient to Yahweh and the book of Moses, or suffer the negative consequences if they chose to unfaithfully disobey him, to intermarry with the pagan nations and turn their backs on God, choosing pagan idolatry and immorality instead. Chapter 24, however, is twice as long as 23, and it gives us a somewhat detailed history of Israel's covenant with Yahweh from the time of Abraham 
then a renewal of the covenant, and finally the deaths of Joshua and Eleazar. In some ways, these two chapters remind me of, of how Genesis chapter 2 is an expanded elaboration on the sixth day of creation in chapter 1. Or, or the way the gospel of Mark is a fast-paced and much shorter version of Matthew's gospel. Or even how Paul's letter to the Galatians can be seen as a, a summary version of Romans. But we'll hold off chapter 24 for next week. Today we look at chapter 23. And I hope you have either your cross-reference sheet or preferably your Bible open to Joshua 23. We'll read the entire 16 verses of this chapter. Now it came to pass a long time after Yahweh had given rest to Israel from all their enemies round about that Joshua was old, advanced in age. And Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in age. You have seen all that Yahweh your God has done to all these nations because of you. For Yahweh your God is he who has fought for you. See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from the Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward. And Yahweh your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight, so you shall possess their land as Yahweh your God promised you. Verse 6. Therefore be very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, and lest you go among these nations, these who remain among you, you shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them, nor bow down to them. For Yahweh has driven out from before you great and strong nations. But as for you, no one has been able to stand against you to this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand. For Yahweh your God is he who fights for you, as he promised you. Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love Yahweh your God. Verse 12, or else, or else, if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you, 
and make marriages with them, and go into them and they to you, know for certain that Yahweh your God will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you, and scourges on your sides, and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which Yahweh your God has given you. Behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth, and you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which Yahweh your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. Therefore, it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you, which Yahweh your God promised you, so Yahweh will bring upon you all harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which Yahweh your God has given you. When you have transgressed the covenant of Yahweh your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of Yahweh will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. You know, Joshua's final words can be reduced maybe to these three combined phrases. They're basically verses 3, 8, and 16. For Yahweh your God is he who has fought for you. You shall hold fast to Yahweh your God as you have done to this day. And then... When you have transgressed the covenant of Yahweh your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods, and bowed down to them, then the anger of Yahweh will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given to you. Folks, Joshua's admonition is serious, because he understood the covenant. He understood what God offers his people, including us, including you and me in today's church. And he understood what it means for his people, God's people, to keep our part of the covenant. You see, Joshua understood, and I believe many of us are seeing it today, he understood that the covenant is always at risk, not because of God, but because of you and me and all his people. The covenant is a pledge that God made with mankind. The first version was God's promise to Adam and Eve when they fell, that one would come to crush the head of Satan, the serpent. God also promised Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son 
and through that son would become a great nation. The ultimate expression of the covenant, of course, is the new covenant that Jesus initiated with his disciples when he took the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper to be celebrated as a reminder of his life, death, and resurrection. You could read that. We, see, we do it every time we have communion. It's in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and 1 Corinthians 11. It says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. See, the call is for us not only to receive his gifts of grace, but also to be active and willing participants in that covenant. See, Joshua is dealing here with the theme of faithfulness. First, emphasizing God's faithfulness. Then the importance of us remaining faithful in the faith in the sorry in the face of so many temptations to be unfaithful. Joshua spoke with the authority of years as he gave both his positive challenge to faithfulness and his warning of the consequences of unfaithfulness. Excuse me. As you know, and we've gone over as we've gone through the book of Joshua, years had gone by since the major part of Joshua's conquest was completed. The land had been allocated to the 12 tribes, but this didn't guarantee the end of struggle. Each of the tribes still had to consolidate its its own position in the land. Yahweh had done what he needed to do, and now the tribes, the people, had to do their part. I hope you see the parallel. When we receive Christ as our Savior, we are given the gift of faith, the gift of salvation, the promise of eternal life, the gift of God's love for us, his grace. But then we have to do some things with what he's given us. I know Christians who don't like the idea that true Christian life has its incomplete dimension. Maybe you haven't heard that term before, but think about that. Excuse me. It's incomplete dimension. I just described it to you. You see, many Christians, especially if they have not been taught correctly, they'd like to come to faith in Jesus and receive happy and fulfilling life as a, a, a neatly wrapped package. Man, come to Christ and you'll have no problems. 
You'll be healthy, wealthy, and happy all your life. Lie. That package. But the business of living one day at a time in which we grow bit by bit in Christ. It's the process of sanctification. Often this life includes doubts, struggles, failures. We all know that. We experience that. But that truth frustrates many Christians. They want those quick, easy answers. They want a life free of problems. And they want instant success. But folks, you know and I know it doesn't work that way. Anybody who's walked with the Lord at really any amount of time knows that it does not work that way. In verses 2 to 5, Joshua declared that a life of faithfulness to the Lord does bring success. We see that clearly described in verse 5. And Yahweh your God will expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. So you shall possess their land as Yahweh your God promised you. Success. It's an interesting concept, as is failure. In God's eyes, success isn't necessarily success, nor is failure necessarily failure, as those terms are used in, in our world. The bottom line of faithfulness to the covenant, faithfulness to God, is that we will succeed. Let's be careful to understand success, though, as that that's defined by God. A couple of days ago, I was at a meeting of pastors and our wives were meeting elsewhere in the building. And um, a wonderful man named Scott Cunningham gave a, a, a terrific talk. And he gave an illustration. Um, he was sitting, excuse me, <clears throat> He was sitting outside at a cafe uh, somewhere in California. He's on staff at uh, Calvary Costa Mesa. And he was sitting outside, and there was another man sitting alone at a table who, uh, who was talking on his cell phone. And I know you're very familiar with this situation. The guy had a loud voice. And everybody could hear everything he was saying. And, and Scott was listening. Evidently, the man was another pastor. And he was talking about how I've only got 200 people, and I know I'm, I'm supposed to have more than that, and 
I need more help and I need I need more money and you know he was just complaining up one side and down the other as a pastor about the circumstances in his church and how he's got more to do than 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 just 200 people and so forth and so on and Scott he really felt a tug of the spirit he was he was upset I would be too and he uh, he said he got up and he went over to the man and politely told him he said you know I'm I'm sorry to have been eavesdropping but I couldn't help it you were speaking to me very very loud and the man said yeah I know I've got a I've just got one of those voices that carries and Scott said yeah yeah and 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 I heard some of what you were saying and I just want to ask you are those 200 people less important than if you had 2,000 people? Are those 200 sheep not worthy of all of your love, all of your care, all of your attention to care for them? How do you think they'd feel if they knew that you were complaining about them? You see, he was referring to the idea of success. And we have our worldly ideas about success. There have been times in the past when people said, hey, how's your church going? I say, great. And the next question is, how many people you got? And instead of giving them a number, I say, well, I'll tell you. I know personally everybody in my church and they know me and there's a lot of love in our fellowship for each other and for God and every one of them is active in some ministry which may be private prayer. They're prayer warriors and no one sees them doing it. Nobody even knows. I said, but I believe I have a very healthy church. And I praise God for that. It's a great blessing for me. So when you ask how you're doing, I say, great. See, I won't give them a number, whether... Some years ago, it was 35 or 24 or 6 or 7 or whatever. I mean, what's God's definition of success in that context? Now, Joshua mentions four steps to take if we want to be successful on God's terms. First one. is to give God the credit for all that you have and for all that you are. This shoots to the very heart of pride that our flesh nature 
wants to feed so badly. In verse 3, and again a couple of verses later, Joshua said, For Yahweh your God is he who has fought for you. And you know, one of the things that can be really, really hard for a pastor is when people come up and say, wow, pastor, thank you. That was a, that was a great sermon. Well, you know, we like to hear that. We study hard. We pray. We try to hear what the Holy Spirit has to say through us and, and all of that. And that's nice. It's encouraging. But, you know, we really need to say, you know, all praise to God. All praise to God. And that's so important because if we ever lose sight of the fact that we are sinners just saved by grace like every other believer and that we're just slugs doing what's made possible by God. Just like every other Christian should be doing what God has called them to do. We need to remind ourselves constantly that every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. Read that in James 1.17. God has won the battle with sin and death and has given us salvation, eternal life, provision, friends, and so very much more. These come from God. We need to be real careful that we don't take credit for that. We can forget that it is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that gives us everything we have. In the account that we've been reading, Joshua's book, Yahweh was in charge. In fact, remember what happened when they took off on their own the first time to Ai? It was like they were saying to God, that's okay, you know, hang out. We could take care of this. Boom. They failed miserably. What was it? 32 men got killed. Yahweh was in charge, and there he was not. They took themselves out from under his direction, under his provision, under his care, under his leadership, and they paid the price for it. Yahweh was in charge, not the Jewish leadership, and not Joshua. You know, I think about that song back when we were talking about, about Jericho. One of the songs that we, we had for our worship time was Elvis Presley singing Joshua Fit the Battle of Jericho. And, uh, you know, it's a fun song. But the fact is, Joshua told people to march around, to blow trumpets, to do that for six days, and on the seventh day, do it seven times. And then he yelled out, yell. 
for Yahweh has given the city into your hands. That was his role in the conquest of Jericho. God's the one who knocked the walls down. God's the one who made that victory possible. Joshua was not the one in charge. He was the one who had his, his ears to the Lord. And just like Moses over those 40 years, he took what God said and gave it to the people. He was just a conduit, like any good Christian leader would be. Conduit for God to speak and to do. There would have been no conquest of the land without God. And there could be no viable, lasting success in your lives or in mine without the grace of our Lord. Okay, the first one, first step was give God the credit. The second one, I might have put it first myself. I, the second is obey the Lord. Obey the Lord. Verse 6, he says, Therefore be very courageous. And you know, obeying God sometimes does take great courage. Most of us haven't faced serious opposition yet in our lives. But when we do, remember, be very courageous. That's used many times. Therefore, be very courageous to do what? To keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. For us, all that is written in the book of God lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. Be careful to obey the Lord. If we want to experience true success, folks, we need to open our Bible, read it daily, study it to learn God's teachings, and then faithfully obey what we read. We need to make the time to do this as a critical, essential priority of our lives. Several times in the Gospels, Jesus equates loving him with obeying him. Three times in John 14 alone. And you'll recall that an important part of the Great Commission Remember those last verses of Matthew? An important part of the Great Commission is where Jesus says that we are to teach them to observe, to obey all things that I have commanded you. He says, go into all the world, baptizing all the nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things I have commanded you. That goes for us. 
we need to make sure that we're taught as well. Clearly, obedience to the Lord, obedience to Yahweh, is infinitely essential for every believer throughout the Bible, throughout the history of the church, and I know on into the future. Obey the Lord. Third, another important step to take to be successful on God's terms is to live a life of separation from the world. If you remember the way that Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, he prayed for his disciples. And um, he prayed something that I guess a lot of people in the church over the centuries after that missed. He pretty much prayed that his followers at that time, his disciples, and right on up to you and me today, that we need to be careful that we are not of the world, but that we be in it so that we can have impact on it, so that we can be the salt of the earth, so that we can impact people for Christ. We're to be in it, but we are not to be of the world. We need to live a life of separation from the world. A lot of that is simply in how we think and what our priorities are. Joshua urged the people to be steadfast in obedience, turning neither to the right hand nor to the left, he said, lest you go among these nations, those pagan nations, who remain among you. Remember, they hadn't destroyed everybody as Yahweh had commanded. They allowed many to live. We're citizens, as you know, of two worlds. We have our responsibilities as members of the human race and as a particular nation within the community of nations. We're reminded of these civic responsibilities in Romans 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2. However, we must be careful not to compromise with the values of the culture in which we live. And folks, right now, most of the nominal church is doing that, has done that. They have ceased truly being Christians. They've put the Bible on the back burner. And they come to a place where they think being socially active and so forth is more important than the eternal gospel. We need to be careful not to do that, not to compromise. I invite you to read Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, and then chapter 5, verse 29, where 
Peter and John said, we must obey God rather than man. Which means we need to obey civil authority, except and unless it contradicts God's word. It contradicts Christian values. In which case, folks, it's not that we may disobey. It's that we must disobey if we're told to do things contrary to what we know is God's truth. As Christians, our primary allegiance is to Jesus Christ, not to the state, not to the, the American flag, not to any organization or person besides Jesus Christ. I'm going to read a few verses that are familiar to you, I hope. 1 John 2.15 We're exhorted, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now we're talking about the world system, values, because we are commanded to love the people of the world, to love them to the point of sharing with them the most precious thing we've ever been given, which is the gospel and our salvation. So we must love the people and sharing them. That's like being in the world to do that. But we are not to love the world system, the values, the culture, the way of life of the world. He says, if anyone loves the world, listen, the love of the Father is not in him. That's hard. Then Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's where Bible study comes in. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. One translator took that verse and said, don't allow yourself to be shoved into the world's mold. Don't let the world compress you into its image of what you should be. Don't let it happen. And then James chapter 4, verse 4, where he asks a question that is deadly serious. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friction, fighting, warfare, hatred with God. Friendship with the world, with the world system, with the world's values is enmity with God. That's why I say those churches that have adopted the world's values have placed themselves at war with the God they pretend to represent. He goes on, he says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world 
makes himself an enemy of God. That's serious. And sometimes, this is where you need to be courageous, sometimes you've just got to make that stand and, and not go with the flow of the world. Be stand alone. Be called weird. Be called a terrorist. You know, be called whatever. Whatever. Doesn't matter. Be faithful to God. Do not love the world system. See, Joshua is so passionate here, as was Moses when you read Deuteronomy, because he's already seen some of God's people turning away, and it deeply concerned him. We see this in verses 12 and 13. That's where that or else. I don't know about you, but whenever I read that, it's like, ooh, something bad's coming. He says, or else, if indeed you do go back and cling to the remnant of these nations, these that remain among you, and make marriages with them, and go into them and they to you. That's referring to sexual intercourse. Letting your men marry their women and their men marry your women. He says, know for certain that Yahweh your God will no longer drive these nations from before you. But they shall be snares and traps to you and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which Yahweh your God has given you. Now, the next book of the Bible, the book of Judges, gives many, many examples. Probably, well, the example that really stands out for me is King Solomon. He began as a faithful, God-loving, God-obeying king. And you know of the story. You know that God gave him wisdom beyond the wisdom of any other human being. But he had this problem, this lust problem. And he ended up with, I think it's 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, uh, those are terms. But I'm sorry. I bet he didn't even remember the name of most of those women. But he had sex with them. He was attracted to them. And undoubtedly, he had many children by them, although we only know of one by name. But one thing about many of those women is that they were pagans. They worshipped false gods. They, um, they worshipped the Baals and the Ashtaroths. They worshipped Moloch. And in order to 
make them happy, Solomon joined them. And he worshipped the Baals and the Ashtaroths and possibly even Moloch. Moloch, the one that you burn your children alive to worship. So Solomon compromised himself, and he loved the world, especially the female world. And he crashed and burned morally and as a leader. Even today, when you go to Israel and you stand on the Temple Mount and you look in front of you, you see the Mount of Olives on the east side across the Kidron Valley. Half of the Mount of Olives is an olive grove still. The other side, the southern side, is a very large Jewish cemetery. But then if you look further, down the Kidron Valley just a little bit, is another high hill. Still today, because that's where Solomon went to sacrifice to other gods and so forth. That's where he went to worship idols. The name of that hill still today is the Mount of Offense. The Mount of Offense. It's what offended God. And it still has that name. because King Solomon compromised. This whole concept is an Old Testament example of the New Testament truth that we are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Now that, that command... It has specific implications for, for marriage, for business arrangements. Uh, I know a man who, a Christian man who uh, was going into business and, uh, in fact, he used to be a part of our fellowship here. Um, he joined uh, another man in business, a, a man he knew, uh, and the man was not a Christian. And they really combined their resources to go into business. And I remember the time when he came to me and uh, he told me, he says, Larry, I should have listened to you. I said, what do you mean? He said, uh, this company's not working out. We just, we just don't get along. We're coming from very different places. His idea of ethics and mine are totally different, and it's going to be messy for us to separate and split this. Of course, the stories of marriages, when a Christian marries an unbeliever, you know, there are so many of those stories. But I'll tell you, aside from all the difficulties during this life, you wonder how a Christian man or woman feels when their 
unbelieving spouse dies. They know that the one that they have loved did not go to heaven, but will spend eternity in the lake of fire. What a horrible thing. Do not be unequally yoked. And it's really true for any relationship where two or more people are closely involved, working combined together. Because if they don't share the same foundation of truth and values, beliefs and priorities, there will be tragic consequences to the relationship. And that's what the Israelites were doing when they intermarried with and went into business with and when they compromised with those pagan nations. Okay, the fourth step in attaining success in God's terms. It's similar to the last one. Avoid pagan worship. Now, when most of us these days hear that, you say, well, that's no problem. I don't have any little idols over here in the corner or whatever. Well, when you go into a Chinese restaurant, you might see a Buddha by the uh, front entrance, and uh, that's not decoration. That's serious. That's, if they're, they are Buddhists, and that's who they worship. And you'll see little things sitting there. But we're to avoid pagan worship, and that doesn't mean, you know, your little stuffed raggedy Ann in a corner and you worship that. It could be. It could. But who of us would practice sacrificing to idols? Huh. It's stupid. Who of us would think of killing our children and worship as did the Canaanites? Oh, wait. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, millions of Americans have sacrificed their children to the false gods of selfishness, convenience, and profit. But Joshua, you see, he tells the people that they are not even to make mention of the name of those pagan gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them, nor shall you serve them, nor bow down to them. That's what he said back in verse 7. In case you missed it, these are very close to the first two of the Ten Commandments. And unfortunately, creeping into the life of any Christian community are the beginnings of pagan worship. We can worship our denominational traditions. Probably the largest pseudo-Christian organization in the world is guilty of that. Or we can worship a particular kind of music. Maybe if you're not singing hymns, you know, you're singing those songs with a beat, and that's, that's, that's the devil's music, you know. Heard that a lot when I was a young Christian. A lot of people were really conservative people, old-time Christians, 
I started hearing what was coming out of California and those upbeat musics using electric guitars and drums and they were worshiping hymns. Now I like hymns, I love hymns. But you don't worship a kind of music instead of Jesus Christ. Believing that somehow we can buy salvation by, by our good works. And you know, that's the attitude when you tell people they need Christ. They say, I, I, think, I think, you know, on a balance, I think I'm a, I'm a good person. I'm a pretty good person. I've done more good things than bad, right? So I'll, I'll be okay. What's God's standard? Is it better than bad? Is it a this? Or is it perfection? If you have not lived an absolutely perfect, sinless life, then you're guilty of, and be damned unless you place yourself in Christ and receive him as your savior who paid the price for all those sins. But some people think that they can, they can buy salvation with good works, with um, maybe with money. You know, uh, we are all supposed to tithe. We're supposed to give to the work of the church, of the faithful, Christ-fearing, God-following church. We're, we're all supposed to do that. But there are people who think, well, I'm just going to give this big amount of money. I know God will be happy with that. I tried to buy salvation. People who who present their money instead of themselves to Christ. What should go on the altar? It should be us sacrificing ourselves, surrendering totally to Christ. Because really, we put ourselves there, that's everything we have. All our stuff, all our money, all, all our everything goes to him. Our worship can also be focused on our spouse or on our children or on our jobs. You know, we, we sacrifice everything for our job. We guys have a particular problem with that. And we use an excuse why I'm doing it for my wife or doing it for my kids or whatever. But what we're doing is we're worshiping our job instead of worshiping Christ and obeying him by putting our family second after him. Jobs, children, spouse, new car. Oh, that car you've been wanting to get, you know. And you've been thinking about it since you were a, a kid, you know, and you got this big blower on it and it's a, Nice, great muscle car, you know, and you're all worship our cars or maybe our hobbies. And here's one that 
we come really close to is a sports team worshiping sports teams or even if we think our patriotism to the United States of America or to Zambia is more important than our loyalty to Christ, we are worshiping our country, our flag, and we are not. It's like, you know, I have this shirt. Uh, uh, Reggie gave it to me. I don't know if any of the others of you have it. It says, I stand for the flag. That's respect. But I kneel for the cross. Very, very different. Very different. We are guilty of idolatry whenever we lift people or things into the place reserved only for the Creator, the one true God. And that's what Joshua was facing here. These people were being drawn away. Okay then, after affirming the faithfulness of God, Joshua turns in verses 15 and 16, the end of the chapter, he turns from the positive promises of faithfulness to the negative consequences of unfaithfulness. You see, it's just facing reality when we look at consequences. To disobey or disregard God is to run the risk of losing his help and seriously damaging our fellowship with him, including him hearing our prayers. You look at Psalm 66, 18, Proverbs 28, 9. They basically say, our sins put a wall between us and God, and he will not hear our prayers. Think about that if you're harboring some sin. God will not hear. So Joshua gives us the ultimate results that are very clear if we are unfaithful. In these final verses of chapter 23, he points out the consequences of unfaithfulness. Now Moses took a couple of chapters to do this. Consequences of unfaithfulness, they're all harmful things. Destruction, God's burning anger, and finally perishing. Verse 15, therefore it shall come to pass that as all good things have come upon you, which Yahweh your God promised you, so Yahweh will bring upon you all harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which Yahweh your God has given you. When you have transgressed the covenant of Yahweh your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods, and bowed down to them, then the anger of Yahweh will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. These ultimate negative consequences are the flip side of the positive ones we, we looked at. These result when we don't give God the credit 
for all we have and for our, all our successes. And when we don't obey the Lord with heartfelt steadfastness, they come when we don't live lives of separation from the world and when we involve ourselves in idol worship that doesn't honor the gifts of faith and God's grace and love and acceptance and his desire to forgive and save us and make us clean and pure. The real issue is that of loving God faithfully, sincerely. Joshua stated it bluntly. In verse 11, he said, Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love Yahweh your God. About 1,500 years later, Jesus gave the same teaching when the question was put to him. One of the scribes asked, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So, as Joshua was preparing to die, his heart was heavy for the future of his people, the people of God. He remembered well the powerful exhortations of Moses already recorded in the law. So Joshua only felt it necessary to focus on the basic issue of faithfulness out of love, obedience or disobedience to God. And truly, for God's people of all times, that is the foundational issue. If we love God, we will obey him. And in order to obey him, we will learn his will, his ways, his commands, his truth. And our obedience will not be relative or conditional depending on circumstances. But it will be absolute no matter what. We know that was, that was Joshua's passionate desire. right before he died. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us examples of people like, like Joshua. Not perfect, but clearly and absolutely another man after your own heart as you speak of David. God, I thank you because you show us that a, a regular human being, one like us, 
can make those choices and those decisions and do those things and choose to do those things and choose to not do other things in order to always please you, in order to obey you. Father, thank you for those examples. Right now, this example of Joshua. I pray, Father, that these ancient words, which have eternal truth, as alive and as relevant today as ever, I pray, Lord, that they will be clear in our minds, at the top of our minds, and that, Lord, we would remember them when we make choices in our lives, when we choose to do or not do things, even when we choose to think or not think about things. You've given us what we need, Lord, and now it's up to us to do our part. I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would give us both the strength and the reminder to do so. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.